This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Thanks for spending part of your day with us. Here on the UPenn campus, the Carnot Prize awarded by the Kleinman Center for Energy Policy was presented to someone who has looked to improve our country's needs around the environment and energy. Gina McCarthy is the former administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency. The award was given last night, but it's a pleasure to have Ms. McCarthy here in our studios, along with Mark Allen Hughes, who is director of the Kleinman Center for Energy Policy. Nice to meet you. Thank you for coming in today. Well, it's great to be here, Dan. Thanks. And Mark, thanks, Mark. Mark, as here. always, great to see you. You too, Dan. Thank you. Um, with with your time working with the EPA, what does an honor like this mean to you? Actually, it's it to me, it's pretty important uh, because the Climate Center is a great place where you teach young people how to think more systemically and across different um, uh, sort of venues of, of how the bureaucracy has cut up the world. Right. And it recognizes that me, who's done work in the environmental world, primarily on public health protections, you know, can be recognized for really having an impact on energy. And I think that's a great recognition of how they they view the world in, in a way that isn't cut up, but it really represents the, the variety of interests you need to consider when you're looking at policy decisions and making people's lives better moving forward. So I'm really excited about it, and I'm honored. It's a, it's a great recognition in the name of a really exciting person, sure. and it's yeah. been received by really great people so far. So I'm, I'm very honored by it. So when you look back at, at, at your time most recently in the White House, what are the things that, that you kind of look back and say you're most proud of, initiatives that you were able to push forward, change that you were able to make? I think I, I worked hard to try to make sure that, that EPA was focused on the biggest ris- risks to public health and that we made that clear to people because right. I think where the environment isn't as visibly dirty as it used to be when right. EPA was created by Richard Nixon um, <laughs> way back when, you know, it, I think people think that these issues have been taken care of. And, and I wanted to make sure that we were focused on the biggest issues of today and use the law and science as best we could to, to address those issues. And so I was proud of the work that, that uh, I did during the, the first term on, on uh, addressing the toxic emissions from yeah. power plants and, and other things. But I think I'm most proud of the work that I did uh, with, the, with the president uh, and his leadership on climate change. I think that's one of the reasons why I'm here today is because it's a recognition that energy and climate – energy and environment have to go hand in hand in order to serve both our current needs as well as the the needs of future generations. And it's a big deal. And the work that we did on that with cars and and with the power sector for the clean power plan is work I'm very proud of. Mark, uh, give us a little uh, historical background on the Carnot Prize. And and as Gina mentioned, there have been some rather significant uh, luminaries that have received this award in the past. Right. Thank you. And, you know, uh, Gina definitely continues that luminary uh, tradition this year. The The first winner was Daniel Jorgen, the esteemed historian of the energy economy and the energy industry and some of the policies that uh, have grown up around it. And then in year two, we gave it to Fatih Birol, 
who is the, again, distinguished yeah. head of the International Energy Agency uh, that has really guided and informed so many of the conversations we're having today about the debates of big issues facing the world and the species, frankly. And with Administrator McCarthy, I have to say, this this one, there's a lot of programming every year around right. the Carnot Prize. Uh, Saudi Carnot was this amateur scientist who is now recognized as having stated the relationship that we know today called the second law of thermodynamics. He had this insightful native genius, but he also saw, and this is really why the administrator exemplifies the award so well this year, he also was one of the first people to note the potential for energy to create, as he called it, great revolutions in human affairs. Right. And, you know, being able to cross those boundaries and connect those dots. And in in Gina's case, her work on so many things and probably best known, certainly among the generation of students that has been so honored to spend yesterday and today with her here at Penn, uh, the Clean Power Plan, right? Yeah. That, yeah. that uh, you know, looking back, Required from her so much courage, creativity, and commitment, right? She really exemplifies these carnal principles. But, but also at this point in history, <laughs> I think looking back at the conversations we've had the last couple of days, in many ways, I think the greatest legacy of that work is not just the substance of it. It's not just the impact on energy and the energy economy or the protection of the environment, both very important and mm -hmm. the – the administrator's kind of native modesty, right, let her – I think she was a little surprised at first when we contacted her about wanting to offer her an energy policy award, right, right a right. prize, uh, because she sees her work rightly so grounded in environmental and public health issues. Right. But her boundary spanning around that, right, is so important. So the content's important, but I think in many ways her greatest legacy is the way she embedded that work in the rule of law. Okay. She embedded that work in good government. And that has a longevity, mm -hmm. you know, and a stamina that really matters right now when there's conversations about rolling back some of that substance. But that work is so grounded right. in governance <laughs> that it's got a stability that's going to matter. It's interesting because I, I think when a lot of people think about the EPA – First off, they don't necessarily associate public health with being an important component of it. They obviously think about the environment. But but now, as this is all kind of developed, especially in the last 20 years, we understand that environment, public health, they are linked. They are right. intertwined and they never will be broken apart, even if they ever were in in the in prior times. Well, it's I find that to be fascinating. I didn't realize having worked for, at both the local and state governments for a long time. I've been doing this for thirty-seven years. When I when I knew EPA, I knew that's what they did. Right. I knew they did public health because that's the work that I did. Right. But when I went there, even the agency didn't stress those issues. Right. You know, they didn't make clear what their job was and why it continued to be important. And EPA isn't the birds and bunnies agency. I love that work. It's really important. Right. But our success is measured by how many fewer premature deaths you, you have if you clean up the air. 
We measure our success in how many people get delivered clean drinking water that is free of contaminants. You know, that's our world. That's the resources that we focus on. And I think it's incredibly important. It's important especially for the issue of climate change because for too long the the vision of climate change has been, ooh, the poor polar bear out on the ice sheets. I worry about them too. But really, this is about the health of today, the public health challenges that we're facing, the safety, the economic, the national security challenges that are all embedded in our changing climate. But it's also getting people to understand that it's about them and their families. It's not about something that's going to happen in India. It is not something that's going to happen to polar bears. Mm -hmm. This is about us. We are already seeing the impacts here in the United States. We're like the first generation to really feel them, and people are recognizing it. But we're also the last generation that's able to do something about it. So that's why it's so important to be here talking to the students and letting them know that while there's a lot of talking rhetoric in this administration about rolling everything back and making announcements, you know, government is more precise than that. It is more thoughtful. It requires a public process. They will have a voice. And it's important to remind them to stop dwelling on what government in Washington is saying. Work in your own life, in your own cities and states. They may be asleep or want to roll back. The rest of us want to deal with reality today. And we want to grab the future. And they have the ability and willingness and understanding to do that. I want them to do that. Which is interesting you say that because I, I saw uh, an interview you given in the last day or so, and you mentioned about all of the, the ideas that obviously have been thrown forth by the current administration, yeah. but the fact that, that many of them may not really pass the legal challenge right. uh, of what is kind of established in our core government. Well, I think folks at Wharton understand this, is that, you know, regulations can be disliked by the business community, and some of them have been disliked for good reason. Right. And I work hard not to to contribute to that bucket. Right. But to figure out how you, you allow a growing economy and you actually underpin it with benefits on public health mm-hmm. that actually make it have the benefit that everyday Americans want to have, not just the business community. So we've been able to do that at EPA, where over our history, we've been able to reduce air pollution 70% while the GDP tripled. Yeah. For every buck of investment we require, we get nine, nine bucks back in public health benefits. The last administration, we actually reduced greenhouse gas emissions down to 1994 levels, while we actually grew 11 million jobs for 75 straight months, okay? We can do this, and this is what the United States expects. I don't expect anybody to actually diminish their public health, their their, uh, health by looking at a new economy, nor do I expect a new public health measure to damage the economy, which is damn smarter than that. And I think young people want to have it all. And I actually think with the right creativity and innovation and people that don't stay in their lane like me, that don't just think I'm doing (laughs) environmental work, what do I care about the economy? Or, you know, if you don't stay in your lane and you reject the bureaucracy that separated people's 
core needs into different pockets and you pull them together, you can make remarkable things happen. Which is why I think if you go back uh, a year or two, uh, what happened in Flint, Michigan, one, it caught a lot of people off guard. And and two, it scared a lot of people because of the fact that here we are in, well, now 2017, but then what, 2015, that something like that could happen in the United States. It, it, It really kind of took people back and say, how can this happen in the U.S. where you can have that many people have their drinking water affected like this to put them absolutely in jeopardy? Yeah. Well, you know, you're you're absolutely right. And the answer to that is that that government failed at all levels and decisions were made that were short sighted and frankly, contrary to anybody's common sense. And we and EPA should have seen it quicker. But the state really deceived people. But the lesson to learn here that I took away was twofold. One is people don't expect these things to happen. Uh They think every drink of of water that they get out of their tap is crystal clear and always is going to be. When they heard that lead is still in drinking water, it was a huge surprise. Was it a surprise to me? No. We've been struggling with this and with lead in paint for how long? But because they can't see it, nobody's talking about it. So it's time for us to really uh, unveil uh, all the data that we see that says that we need to do better and keep moving forward, not to make people skid, but to re-energize them, to let them know that the job isn't done and investments still need to be made. But when you do that, like on issues of climate, you can find a path that, that starts new technologies, new product yeah. lines that makes that transition. I think the, one of the biggest dangers of, of this administration, frankly, when they came in and started denying climate change and rolling back EPA was actually the uncertainty it brought to the business community. Because if you look at, at, at the work that we did in Paris, much of it was done yeah. by the private sector, yeah. by both the big businesses who understood the threat it means for them, Coca-Cola, Pepsi. I mean, you had uh, Kellogg there. Yeah. You ha- I mean, everybody knows that there's threats that are real that need to be addressed. But, you, but, but when you actually deny the climate science and you start veering away attention and saying you're doing rollbacks, you know, you may not like regulations, but they provide a level playing field. They provide a certainty to not just how you run your business, but what you invest in. And the long-term damage to this administration, I don't think, at least in my little world, I should say, there are many other things up in the air, but the long-term damage is not really going to be the success in rolling back what are very well-done rules that follow the law, follow the science, that outreach like crazy so we could learn how to do this right and, and did it right. It's, it's really that long-term investment signal. We are now yeah. – China is going to actually be and have the ability to be the driver of, of what happens sure. in businesses here in the United States. Yeah. Just look at General Motors. You know, you had the CEO of General Motors all worried because the EU has decided they're going to ban the internal combustion engine. Sure, yeah. Or in China was doing the same thing as she went to China just a couple of weeks ago to convince them that they should take their time. We <laughs> right. want to be there. Right. And then yesterday or the day before GM announced, you know, the internal combustion engines yesterday's technology because China is controlling that market. China has one of the largest electric vehicle companies, and they're going to start selling in the U.S. And it's a shame. 
that this president isn't realizing, I think what President Obama certainly stated, was the winner of clean energy is going to be the strongest country in the world. And we need that long-term investment and those signals. That's why the business community knows it, and the uncertainty that they've created is really diminishing our country's ability to remain as strong as it needs to from an economic standpoint. Well, playing off of that, Mark, I mean, it's, it's it, we've talked with you about this in the past, and, and again, it, I think it bears repeating, is the fact that from a business perspective, there are unbelievable opportunities out there for business in the next decade, two decades, you know, 100 years mm-hmm. moving forward. Uh, some business sectors will obviously be negatively affected, but they can adjust, try to do so at least. Uh, and, and yet we still have this this kind of unbelievable mindset uh, out there that that it's all going to be negative. You know, there's no positive business right. impact. Exactly. And until we kind of get past that point, you know, you, you're still going to have a lot of this infighting going on. No, that's exactly right. I mean, as you've both suggested, the, you know, the, 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 the foundation for that opportunity is stability around some of the policy. Right. Without, in fact, the last time the IPCC, which is a big, you know, a big scientific process um, that's hosted by the United Nations that every year, every few years actually uh, releases major reports about the kind of the state of the climate, the state of the energy economy, and so on, in the last round of those assessment reports stated that policy uncertainty is now the single largest barrier to the kinds of transitions that we're all talking about here. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, especially American business, right, is infinitely adaptable and innovative, right? So able to respond to almost any set of policy signals, they just need them to last longer than five minutes, right? right? And ideally last longer than eight years. So that with a path that they can kind of build around and expect between the technological innovation. My favorite anecdote about this is that uh, when we it came time to write one of our annual report documents this year, we were loaned a, uh, a, a writer from the university, from the president's office, right? And and her kind of intro to the you know the work of the center was a kind of an imagine if thing. Where sure. I said, yeah. Imagine if this and this, and she really brilliantly noted three or four examples. Imagine right. a world where, and as we were reading the draft, we realized you know what. Every single one of these things is completely, not only technically possible, but proven. Right. The reason we don't have these things is policy and market barriers to their deployment. Yeah. But the real, in which we, so we use that to make the point, right, that the, the real challenge here in so many ways is a governance challenge yeah. um, where yeah. you can, you know, we can deploy the kinds of innovations and outcompete on, you know, stable market signals any, with anybody. But there are barriers that require significant and uh, sustained governmental public attention. That is Mark Allen Hughes, who's director of the Climate Center for Energy Policy here at the University of Pennsylvania. We also have uh, former EPA Administrator Gina McCarthy in studio with us as well. I, I guess then, having spent the time in Washington that you did, is there a realistic belief that we can get the right policy? And I say that because... One of the things I have harped on for a long time is just the ineffectiveness of what we have in Congress. And I'm not going to even worry about the White House, but let's focus on Congress and what has happened there in the last 12 years where we just seemingly we have people that can't get out of their way in that place that that are the people that could make the policy changes that need to happen. 
Well, you know, one of the little quips I always use is that uh, when I uh, did my undergraduate work at UMass Boston, yeah, great school, loved it. Um, I worked in social anthropology, which means I studied primitive societies, and I tell people that that was the greatest education I could get from my work with Congress. <laughs> 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 Sorry about that. <laughs> I should have seen that. You should have seen that coming in. You walked right in. I've never seen anything like it. Right. You know, when yeah. I, I've been testifying, I, I probably testified more than anybody uh, in the administration, right. honestly, because I got called everywhere um, because I was doing things, which is apparently painful for them to to figure out. So I how, went, dare, I, how dare you, yeah, by the I know, way? I know. How yeah. dare I do what the law actually demands yeah. and, the, and, and not be contrary to science? Right. But I'd go to the science committee, and it was, it was the most baffling experience everywhere. Yeah. You know, they, they are now, Congress is now proposing to make changes to how science is done. By telling yeah. us what 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 science we can actually pay attention to, right, yeah. like the nefarious, you know, American Cancer Society science or Harvard University is no longer something we should be looking at. Right. Make sure don't look at that good stuff, you know, that can actually help you define what healthy year ought to be, you know. And and they're telling us that we need to change the peer review process so that it, it makes it easier and better to have more business representatives, even those that have a direct interest in the issue being considered right. by the scientists. And, and they've even said you need to make sure that bi- all biomass is treated as, as carbon neutral. Right. Now, I realize th- th- this is allowing Congress to actually dictate science in sure. the process that the entire world follows. Right. We're not the only nerd heads doing peer review processes. <laughs> Everybody knows that's what you do to keep an independent science. So what they're doing with the press to try to to actually say that the press is is not factual and and minimize the ability for people to get real information, right. you're seeing it being systemically trying to build into the system in Congress. Let me ask you uh, because obviously the last month and a half we've gone through uh, uh, an unbelievable rash of of hurricanes with Harvey and Irma and, and uh, with uh, Maria as well. What what role does EPA have to play when we're talking about those storms as well, those types of storms? I'm really glad you asked me that because most people don't know this. But when you have an emergency like that, EPA is is one of the agencies that, that responds in force. Because EPA's expertise is when you have a flood like this, are you, are you, are you ending up with contaminants in the water that people are wading through? Yeah. Are you, is it creating an internal mold problem in people's homes after the flood subsides? Has it done damage to the drinking water system? How do you get people drinking water? What's safe? What isn't? So we go in there with a field of experts that look at everything from is that oil tank that that it was underwater still stable to can you return home and if you return home what kind of protection you should use right. if you're going to start tackling the the challenges that have been left behind and we're we're the ones that do air monitoring, like at that chemical yeah, facility. Just was going to say outside of Houston, yeah. Yeah, uh, they, they, there was a big challenge, and, and uh, I I just re- found out last week that some of the responders um, to that challenge, when there was an explosion at a chemical factory, um, are actually suing both the company as well as EPA for basically what they believe was a failure to anticipate and prepare for hmm. such an emergency and for EPA for not disclosing the monitoring data. 
which I don't understand. When I was at home watching a press conference where the only one speaking at that press conference was the president of the company or the their manager of that facility, yeah. I was shocked because generally if you want to know what's going on, you have the federal agency standing up there saying, what did I find out? What do I know? Yeah. That didn't happen in this instance. And the thing that really bothers me, Dan, and and I'll get more hopeful as time goes on. Do we have you know, like you next got, couple of hours? You, <laughs> well, <laughs> no, no, I, I really am. Cancel everything yeah, yeah, else, yeah, yeah, Patty. We're going with Gina for Would two hours mind? there. Go no, ahead. the only other thing is that what it, what really bothers me is when this administration came in, they basically said we're going to look at everything the prior eight years did, any anything that was done, including yeah. a little fix to chemical safety rule that we had. That that was uh, a result of the 11 emergency responders in West Texas that died yeah. because they didn't have information on what was stored there, and the company didn't protect themselves by, by those responders by properly storing and preparing for an emergency. So we put this little rule together. We got it done. We said you got to give more information to your local responders. We went to Homeland Security to make sure it wasn't a risk, and we said do some more preparedness planning for emergencies like that. Right. This administration unilaterally said, well, we're not going to really implement that till 2019. That's one of the ones we want to rethink. Why? Yeah. I mean, this. we know that climate change is going to be causing these severe weather events that are going to be worse and worse and worse as time goes on. We need to be protected. But in the matter of hope. <laughs> <laughs> so not necessarily now or in the next couple of years, but what do you expect to be the future of EPA? Yeah. I actually think EPA is going to be okay. I think we have significant budget challenges because of this administration. But the issues you just pointed out is what is the range of work that EPA does that states cannot do? What is the expertise right. of the agency? I know okay. that, that no matter whether you're a Republican or, or a Democrat or – or this administration, whoever you think, you care about breathing clean air. You care yeah. about drinking clean water. And, and you care about the land that you live on and making sure your kids' schools are healthy and your homes are okay. And the products are being sold aren't going to cause you a health consequence. And that's, that's what EPA does. And I think we still embrace that mission. So while we may be a little bit off track right now, I'm very confident that if cities and states keep stepping up, if the business community continues to see value in the certainty that is provided by government yeah. and, and a path forward to take actions that actually make sense economically and for public health purposes, we'll be okay. Do you think we, we are – and if you go back 20 or 30 years, uh, one of the concerns were various landfill sites that you had yeah. all kinds of different chemicals in. Have – has the United States done a good enough job to be able to manage that and understanding that probably I don't know if if the impact of those has gone away or will go away for a long period of time? No, I, I mean, I feel like sometimes it's a never ending list. We get a few off and we get right. a few on. And right. that's actually what happens. But we have made considerable progress. And we do now understand how to clean it up. We work with the responsible parties to actually fund that. Um, but it, it's going to be a continued challenge. And, yeah. and, and we just have to stop the contamination that continues this revolving door. But in many ways, these are legacy issues, Dan. We know better. We yeah. know how to do it. That's what regulations are designed to do. So as long as we don't start, you know, really questioning 
the fact that the 60s were bad, they'll in the in the you know next generation will have to face that if we don't continue to progress forward, and that that's all we need. And if we work with the business community and states, we'll be all right. One of the interesting examples, speaking of, of the cleanup of that, uh, I, I just happened to see the pictures this past weekend was the site where they were playing the President's Cup golf tournament this past weekend, which is now Liberty National Golf Course. But if you go back to the 40s and 50s, they said that was one of the worst sites. From from chemicals and and the the, uh, the the manufacturing build up back in the forties and the fifties and how that was cleaned up and and you know, they obviously had to turn over a lot of soil to be able to get a lot of that material out of there to the fact now where it's a it's a premier location yeah. you know for people and those are probably thousands of those spots you know around the United States. Well, one of the programs that Congress loves and there's many good people in Congress, so I shouldn't sweepingly call them. Primitive. I, I will, <laughs> but but um, is is our brownfields program, and that is to take a contaminated site and turn it into something profitable, something yeah. meaningful. The good thing that's happened, and you see this in the park out here, is that we we now understand that even contaminated sites can turn back into natural systems that function in a way that people love. Yeah, it feeds your soul. It gives you a great place to go. Yeah, but it also is is even more beneficial. Yeah. Than the kind of concrete structures we've been using in the past, and it and it so these these what we call green infrastructures yeah. are really lessons learned about how to make sure that we allow nature to do its job in a way that we can't manufacture ourselves, and and it's a it's a wonderful thing, and I think you'll see a lot of these sites are not just cleaned up properly, but to the benefit of everybody, so they become the kind of special places we all need. Specifically, what are you doing now? Right now, I'm doing a couple of things. I'm, I'm uh, actually doing uh, a lot of work with, with Harvard at the School of Public Health. Right. Um, I did a couple of fellowships, uh, one at the School of Public Health and the Kennedy School. And I'm continuing to work with them on some climate and public health issues to try to get communication from the scientists better mm-hmm. so that, that people can understand how to take research like the ones at this university and actually get it in a form where people – the normal people can understand it sure. like me yeah. um as well as policy people can use it to actually design uh, next steps forward that makes sense from a governance perspective. So that 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 is really fun. I am actually an operating advisor at a uh, private equity uh, company out of New York called Pegasus Capital Advisors. They invest in sustainability yeah. um, as well as wellness issues, which is right up my alley. It's sure. sort of that combination that I like, which gives me hope too, because you see some really cool innovations coming in. Well, and the fact that you have <laughs> you have uh, funds that are actually looking more so for ideas of growth that are tied to sustainability right. and not just looking for the best you know, value for their buck. That's exactly right. Yeah. And what's great is you can actually make money on this right. stuff. Right, exactly. When you hit that sweet spot, yeah. that, that's, the, that's the goal you're looking for. And that's what we sought with the clean power plan so we could take some really strong action. But we did it in a way that followed the way the energy world works. So it made it didn't allow people to think that we were going off in 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 advancing one core need at the exchange of another that's good governance yeah. that's what you do you may have bureaucracies that split up life but if we don't remember who we work for and that is every kid in this country sure. yeah. and in fact in climate it's every it's our own species that we're working for uh, we we just have to return to that and remember that as big as government can get it still remains about my family 
my kids, and that's what motivates us. Great meeting you. Thank you for coming in. Hopefully we can have you back on another time. I'd love that. More more awards are always welcome. (laughs) Absolutely. And she's wearing a green jacket today, so I didn't know if that was for the environment. And it's not for the Masters. That was my my other one. There you go. It had to be one of the two. Thank you for coming in, Gina. Appreciate it. Thank you again. It was great. Mark, as always, great to see you. Great, you too. Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.